My name is John Shaman. My podcast is Shaman MD. My guest today is a very longtime friend of mine, Dr. Michael Cox. Uh, we met originally in the mid 70s when I was training in my field to work in cardiac rehabilitation after medical school. And Mike was working in the same lab, and I got to know him, and we became pretty major friends in, over the years. And even though He's been away in the U.S. recently for quite some time. We've maintained that friendship and connection. So let me tell you the story about how I got into this, and then Mike can fill in about that field of cardiac rehab and how it impacted ourselves as well as the world. While I was an intern and in medical school, I liked cardiology. I was a bit weird because I really liked electrocardiograms and not many other doctors really liked that that much. And I kind of did. Uh, so I was a bit strange that way. And because of that, I wanted to go into cardiology and everything was set. I was on top of the world when I was um, admitted into the cardiac training program at Toronto General Hospital, one of the most sought after training facilities in the world. Literally, Four or five weeks before that was to start, I attended a meeting that the hospital sent me to in the city of Toronto at a, at a big conference center. And it was called the Conference of Cardiac Rehabilitation. And the people at our hospital had never heard of that before. And they said, Shaman, you're going into cardiology. How would you like to go to that and report back to us at Grand Rounds the following Wednesday? I said, well, anything to do with cardiology, I think I should know about it. So I went to this and um, I didn't know Mike then. He may well have been there, but I didn't know him then. And I was so captivated by what I saw and all the people that I didn't know presenting, I later found out or quickly found out were world icons. Uh, names like Dr. Ken Cooper, Dr. George Sheehan, Jim Fix, who wrote the book on running. Uh, and I can't name them all. They were just all people that, I found out later were very, very famous people. I was so excited by this field. I was wondering how I might work in this field. So I went to visit Dr. Terry Cavanaugh, who put on that symposium. In my opinion, he's the father of cardiac rehabilitation, without question in Canada, if not the world. And he met with me and I told him what I wanted to do. And he said, well, if you finish your training in cardiology, you won't do this. So I recommend if you really wanna do this, you'll become my clinical fellow. And the rest is history. I did that. And at that time, cardiac rehabilitation was very questioned. Uh, people said, well, you can't make people live longer. So why would you do that? And I thought, well, when you rehabilitate a knee patient with rehabilitation of their knee, you don't do that to make them live longer. You do that to make their knee work better. That was my argument. Now, of course, we know differently, and we do know that people actually do live longer. So what I'd like to do now is ask Michael to talk a little bit about those early years when we were together in that lab and what this new field meant to us and how it changed our lives. Michael. Sure. Uh, welcome. Uh, well, welcomes from Maine here, John. The, uh, so you and I came together at the Toronto Rehabilitation Center in the mid 70s. And I was a doctoral student at the time in faculty medicine and received a research fellowship 
from the University of Toronto and came up from the States to take that on. The, it was an interesting time to say the least. Um, the whole field of applied physiology uh, really uh, hadn't come of age. It was a relatively new science and certainly the technology uh, wasn't there to really do an in-depth study of the body and function. Most of the mammalian physiology you and I were used to at that time were really looking at the body and rest. Uh, however, we, uh, we had a non-invasive uh, hemodynamic lab at the Toronto Rehab Center, and we took post-infarct heart attack patients who had been discharged from Sunnybrook Hospital. And we brought them to the lab and we exercised them on a cycle ergometer to max and collected all kinds of data like cardiac output, stroke volume, arterial venous oxygen difference, and all the metabolic parameters that go with that. Now to me, and perhaps at the time, we didn't think it was that significant, but the standard of care in uh, cardiology and with patients' discharge was really to go home and lay down for several weeks. And here we were taking these patients in a lab, exercising them to max uh, within a short time of discharge from the hospital. And uh, so this was really pioneering work. And I think the other thing, perhaps as young sort of whippersnappers at this, perhaps we didn't realize, and looking back now, I do, we were working and associated really with the giants in the field, like Terry Cavanaugh and Roy Shepard and John Sutton, Norman Jones, Peter Rednitzer, and the Ontario Collaborative Heart Study, as it was known, really eventually evolved as the basis uh, and the foundation of all the cardiac rehab you see today around the world. So it was an exciting time. I think you and I were very fortunate uh, to be in that situation and work with such visionary people and strong scientists and uh, probably impacted both of us for the rest of our careers. So an exciting time, to say the least. Well, there's no question about it. Um, I sometimes look back at my career, and I wonder how the heck that happened. Because I was going to be a cardiologist where I would follow a path that is paved that many have been on, with lots of road signs and no, no real obstacles. And I went into a, a, a practice that had roadblocks at every turn uh, because this wasn't at that time funded and to try and make it work was, was a challenge. And as time went on and I started my practice, I really didn't know where I was going. I mean, I knew that I was going to run a program. I was a bit of an innovator at the time. I in, in, innovated a number of things into cardiac rehab that no one else has done. 
I do electrocardiograms at every session. And as you know, that's not a common thing. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of technologies and methods. And we also have a session where we have a lot of group support, which brings me to the question. Uh, at that time, everything that we did was exercise related. And it took another decade or more before we started realizing there was a bit more to cardiac care. And of course, along came the diet with Dr. Dean Ornish's work in the, you know, uh, 11 or 12 years after I started in 78. Um, and that added to the realm. And now, this also translated over into other aspects of life having to do with stress management. And uh, Dr. Ornish talked about the importance of group support, which he actually put above exercise and diet. But then again, those weren't, uh, exercise was not his main strength. So of course, he had the other things that he kind of concentrated on. But he did very well, showed that you could actually unblock atherosclerosis in the arteries. So do you have any recollection um, of how these other aspects fit in? Because I know the next thing you went into as part of your doctorate work was the, the business of employee health. And I know that you had things going on there that were not just exercise, you were talking about um, mental health and uh, stress management and these kinds of things. And I think you had a really landmark study there with the two insurance companies. Do you want to tell us about that? Sure. The, <clears throat> so, you know, it was sort of for me, um, evolving from working with patients who were very sick into a so-called normal population where you have many people who have primary and secondary risk. And the what became known as the Canada Life Study was the first controlled trial uh, and the only one ever since done in looking at the workplace and intervening in the workplace, not only, as you said, from an exercise standpoint, but really changing the work environment to allow people choices. So that, for example, the choices may have been in the uh, employee cafeteria, where we had things, what we call the square meal, square deal, where food was all color-coded and you had a color square from each color. Time you got the end of the line, you had a balanced meal, nutritious meal. Um, the company was set up in such a way that instead of taking elevators, people had the choice to take stairwells that were not dark and gloom, but, you know, part of the nice environment, beautified and so on. Smoking cessation was a big part of it. Stress management was. So you're looking at the total body mechanism. And we studied, besides the physiology and risk reduction, cardiac risks reduction, I mean, we studied absenteeism, job satisfaction. And it was a landmark study. And much like our cardiac rehab study, uh, most of the employee wellness and fitness programs today, in the day, today's world, emanated from the Canada Life Study. So very proud of that. And uh, 
if you search the literature, you'll see several papers over the years that were published as an outgrowth of that study. So yeah, big time stuff. And as you know, there besides cardiac rehab all around the world, we have employee wellness and fitness programs all around the world that it do incorporate all aspects of health. Now that you've retired, how do you feel that you've been such a major part of all those important things? Well, it's, you know, it's an honor because we had such great teams and, and all this really uh, came from the mentors we originally had, like Terry Kavanaugh and Roy Shepard and all the people you meet along the way. Um, you know, healthcare tends to be a very parochial environment and risk adverse. And change is a tough thing. It's uh, in that environment. I would say that we were parts of teams that were in today's vernacular called disruptive uh, because we were doing things that, uh, you know, people uh, thought, even though they were not correct, were unsafe, for example. So to move beyond that traditional sort of medical look at things and branching out uh, was major. And, you know, just as I look back, I'm just so grateful that I was able to be involved with all those things. You know, sometimes you look back at life and you kind of think, what would like life be like if I wouldn't have met such and such? And I, I would have to say that that applies to you. If I wouldn't have met you back in the mid-70s, my life probably would have been very different. But anyway, um, and then you went on and did something else quite amazing and uh, important. You started some work with professional and competitive athletes. Would you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Well, we, <laughs> the way I look back on it now is I started with, unhealthy patients went to the normal population and did all kinds of things and then evolved into the Olympic and professional athlete realm with elite athletes. And, uh, in, you know, we, I, we did a lot of work with different teams. And when I was in Canada, we worked with the Olympic swim teams and judo and rowing and a number of teams. But in the, the professional realm, I uh, really um, started working in the NHL. And a lot of that was really uh, because of my relationship with Coach Keenan, who was the University of Toronto hockey coach and then became uh, the coach of Philadelphia Flyers. And when he was in Toronto and I was there and we had all our laboratories at the university, he had come to me and asked if there was a way to design tests that were reflective of a hockey player's physiology and thus could you set up training programs around that profile, which we did. And he went on to win the national championship. And then the following year was with the Flyers and asked me and my team from the University of Toronto, we could come to Philadelphia 
and uh, bring a lab with us. And back then, nothing was too mobile. Technology hadn't really caught up yet, like it is today. And again, I had great people around me, great technicians in the lab. And we uh, set up a whole mobile lab. Uh, sometimes it was uh, a bit duct taped together. This is well before personal computers. And we would haul it all down to Philadelphia three times a year and do the human performance assessments of the flyers and set up their training programs and modify them throughout the year based on the assessments we did. Um, it was, again, an exciting time. Nobody had ever done that in the NHL. Um, at that point, the NHL did not put a lot of emphasis on training and fitness. And the work we did with Coach Keenan and the Flyers changed that whole dimension across the league. Um, we took the youngest team in hockey and went to the Stanley Cup Finals the first year against a team that some people consider one of the greatest to ever lace them up and be on the ice. And that was the Edmonton Oilers, Wayne Gretzky and Messier and that whole crew. And we, uh, we didn't win the Stanley Cup, but we took them seven games. And, wow. Wow. And the, you, you can know, say my... about the Flyers back then, they were playing as hard in the third period as they did in the first. And that's what kept them in the game. I remember vividly. You and I being, at, I believe it was at the American College of Sports Medicine annual meeting, I forget the city. And um, you were really interested in going to somewhere where there was a TV in a sports bar. And we sat in there watching that final series. And uh, you were all excited, let me tell you. And the fact that the Flyers, which at that time, I remember because I was interested on your behalf, uh, they were ranked as not making the playoffs. And they made it through all the different levels of the playoffs right to the final. And then the greatest team, possibly the greatest team ever with those players that you mentioned, uh, beat them. But it took them seven games. That would say a lot for your program and a lot for your testing that you did. Well, it woke up the NHL because uh, it caught people's attention. They wanted to know what that Coach Keenan was doing. And as things evolved, um, other teams started testing. And I had several colleagues around North America that started working with the other hockey teams. And um, that became uh, sort of the standard. And the league changed greatly. And, uh, you know, over eight through 10 years, I collected data, which showed how the physiology of hockey changed. And we published that, those results. And in order to play in the NHL today, you have to be in shape. So, so that was, you know, that was a Im big impact on uh, that sport. And it was, that was always a lot of fun working with the athletes. So, so, uh, you know, there you go. We had the, started with the patients and the regular population and then did a lot of work with the elite. I guess there's not uh, much athletes. else you can do now. 
I'm not sure you could. You know, um, but it is, uh, you know, the technology today has made it so much easier uh, to study the body at function. Right. And you can study people at work. You can study people running on a treadmill. We developed ergometric testing to test Olympic swimmers in the water. Um, so it's come, come an awful long way. And a number of those athletes from the Olympics in those years, I, uh, I probably ended up seeing them in the sports injury side of things. Uh, I had quite a few gold medalists and maybe you'd worked on them in the physiology lab and mm -hmm. I helped them over their injuries and we got quite a few medals in 84. Yep. And um, you were there in 84, I believe. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. So, you know, the whole sports medicine thing, as you know, is really come a long way, the physiology. Um, and, you know, athletes are doing things and breaking records today that people thought were next to impossible just a few years ago. So. Right. And, you know, when we used to be at those meetings, the American College of Sports Medicine, we went to a lot of them, too. You and I went together a lot. And at that time, we were the young guys. And we looked at all those people we looked up to, and they were these old guys. <laughs> well, what the heck happened? All of a sudden, we're the old guys. <laughs> How the hell? Hard to believe, isn't it? Well, you know, it's always an honor to work with you. And, and again, I think you and I were so fortunate to yeah. have uh, such great people around us help lead the way and mentor us and guide us. And... Uh, you know, the one thing I took away from all those people was to uh, simply ask the simple but salient questions. And uh, through that, you usually uh, find a pathway that leads you to the good things, the factual things, the truth of what's really going on. And uh, quite frankly, the, no pushback on being disruptive or thinking out of the box. I think, you know, that was the culture uh, you and I came from. So, and, you and know, as you know, we, we went to conferences where uh, uh, people were debated us uh, about what we were doing, especially with the, the whole cardiac rehab end of things, because as logical and intuitive as it sounds today, uh, back then when you have a standard of care was to go lie in bed and you're asking people to get up and walk or run. And we had the first group of cardiacs run the Boston Marathon. That was a major challenges. And that's only a few years after cardiac care actually had this big breakthrough. Uh, I think it was somewhere in the, in the later 40s. It was in the 40s. But, mm -hmm. And this breakthrough was they took patients who were normally uh, in bed for so many weeks after because it was felt that a damaged heart wouldn't possibly be able to even walk to the bathroom. And the big breakthrough was they were now allowing patients to sit up in a chair with their legs dangling. <laughs> I mean, imagine that. And yes. from that big breakthrough in the 40s, to 20 some odd years later, running a marathon. Unbelievable. Yeah. But now I'd like to present something else to you uh, that I've observed, and I wouldn't mind your comment. Mm 
In many ways, I see the modern world a much more difficult world to maintain fitness and good health compared to the years when you and I were younger. When I grew up uh, in the 60s and even late, I don't remember the late 50s, but certainly in the 60s, in the, the city, the town I lived in, there was no fast food restaurant, like none. And everybody had physical jobs to do because it was required to do the jobs that were needed by our, our workforce involved physical effort. We were the machines. That's not the case anymore. Even when I was training under Roy Shepard and, um, you know, when you were doing your thesis and all that, I was doing some exercise physiology work with him. And I remember him saying that they did an analysis, him and uh, Perolaf Astran, PO from Sweden, they often work together. And uh, they did a study and they looked at most jobs in North America and they didn't find any job that gave enough fitness for the people. They actually had to go out and exercise. And that's in the 70s. So in the old days, our forefathers got enough exercise uh, in their jobs and in more recent times, going back even to the 70s, people had to exercise. After a day's work, they used to have to rest. Now after a day's work, they've got to exercise. And that's gotten even way worse since the 70s. Put on top of that, the whole business of all the food that we have now that is highly processed, fast foods. I mean, there wasn't a fast food restaurant in the city I was in at the very beginning when I remember back in those days of going to grade school. Uh, now there's, there's all kinds of them. Like they're everywhere. There's absolutely everywhere. And where do you think we're going? What's going to happen? Do you have any opinion on that as far as, I mean, we've got all this knowledge now. We've got all this technology that's taken, a, taken us away from the physical effort that used to be required by our forefathers. And we've got all this food that is often nutritionally not that good or is actually bad. So a couple of thoughts along those lines. I agree with you completely. The, uh, you know, earlier we talked about changing the environment, allowing people choices. They've done a pretty good job in Scandinavia with uh, that whole concept, uh, you know, with bike paths and uh, Vita parkours and places where people can go. And the whole idea of the employee wellness programs is you have a captive audience and you can change the environment. Uh, but it's tough because uh, there aren't the physical demands there used to be. So to do all that is really a major uh, concentrated effort. I think the other thing on top of that that perhaps concerns me even a little more is our youth and the propensity to sit in front of computers and playstations. And as you say, there's a fast food restaurant on every corner. It's easy to spend hours sitting. When we grew up, you know, sound like the old men now. When we grew up, we were out playing. And uh, the whole physical activity thing was just natural. Um, you left the home in the morning, you came home for dinner, and you've been outside all day being physically active. So I th think we have a major challenge uh, with the youth of the nation. In Canada and the U.S., very much the same. 
And uh, to get those people active, you got to start at an early age, make it become habitual. And I'm not sure we've really done a good job with that. So that's, you know, that's sort of the compounding nature of everything you're talking about. And um, if you're in healthcare at all, I mean, you see the impact of it. Because most of the things that walk through the physician's door are uh, problems that are preventable. And they're preventable through proper nutrition and physical activity. So it's a challenge. I wouldn't say we're necessarily a fit society. Um, I think they estimate in the U.S. maybe there's at most 18% are physically active at a level that produces positive health results. I'll share with you and the audience uh, a bit of a case history of a patient um, that came to me after a few things that already happened. He was in his mid-60s. And uh, he had an early retirement and went down into Florida for the winter. And he and his wife were driving back to Canada, uh, you know, in whatever, March or April. And as they're driving through the Carolinas, he gets this horrible chest pain. And uh, his wife remarked on it, says, what's wrong? He says, well, I got this tightness in my chest. It's getting strong. It's making it difficult to breathe. So eventually they drove off to a, one of those H signs on the side of the road. They went out to the hospital. They sent him over to the heart center. And they did an angiogram, which is a dye test to see what the arteries of the supply of the heart looked like. And he needed a bypass. So they bypassed him there. Luckily, he had insurance. And then he eventually came home and his, his uh, doctor in one of the surrounding cities, uh, the city of Cambridge, Ontario, uh, heard about what had happened to him and he said you know I, I've been sending some patients to this doctor out in Breslau which is my clinic and do you want to go there and he said yes and he came and at that time we had already started what we call the heart disease reversal program which is a tough program but it incorporates all of those things that Dr. Dean Ornish had shown in the late 80s uh, and since then as well that would also would actually lead to reversal of that atherosclerotic blockage, something I never would have believed could happen, but it was happening. So this patient signed up for one of those workshops. Uh, we did 50 of them all together from 1993 until um, 2011, I think was the 50th one. And he really got into it, did it all. And then something happened that was a bit quite disturbing. His 45-year-old son, the truck driver, also in the city of Cambridge, went out with their, his uh, co-workers into their trucks to go for their daily route. And uh, one of the secretarial people looked out and they said, well, they mustn't be able to get the truck started because he's still out. One of them still out there. They didn't know which one it was. So after a while, they said, somebody go out and have a look and see if we can help him get his truck started. So they went out and had a look. And my patient's son, 44, 45 years old, was slumped over the wheel of his truck dead. So the father luckily had a second chance. The son didn't. So some months later, the grandson of my patient, the son of the guy in the truck, uh, was sent to me from Toronto, an hour and a bit drive from my center. And they wanted him to undergo testing to see how he was and whether we could give any advice. And I tested him and he was 23 years old. 
And on the treadmill, I have a way of grading where I want people with respect to aerobic endurance fitness capacity, uh, something that we call, uh, just for the audience, something called VO2 max or oxygen consumption. And my estimate of what he was able to achieve, um, which is reasonably accurate, uh, wouldn't be the accuracy of the lab you ran, but for practical purposes, I don't think we could go to that kind of trouble and expense. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't work for us, but it works well enough. And uh, our, our system of, uh, of estimation of that number, he was coming in at an 84-year-old level. Unbelievable. Uh, and the guy was quite overweight. I asked him how much exercise he got. He says he gets quite a lot of exercise, but only one body part. What, what do you mean by that? It's just, I'm a computer programmer, so I use the mouse continuously all day long. So his, his, his right hand and forearm gets a lot of exercise. Certainly not enough to cause uh, aerobic endurance training. So Mike, for our audience, could you just comment on some basic things about fitness with respect to um, when you exercise, uh, how would you recommend uh, people take, uh, uh, start that? How would they undertake that? If somebody isn't exercising. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing that's, always stuck with me for my whole career when you and I started with Dr. Terry Kavanaugh was what what Terry Kavanaugh called LSD for long, slow distance. And he started everyone walking. And back then it was trial and error because nobody had been doing that. And he came up with some formulas for walking. still can find those charts in his book and publications. But there's probably, in my mind, for people in that situation, from a physiological standpoint, no better exercise than than to walk. Now, you know, the other challenge you commonly see, you know, John, is sometimes orthopedic challenges with people like that and their knees and so on. And uh, perhaps cyclergometry would be a better uh, choice if they have those type of challenges. But walking is it. And you and I know that once you can continually walk for 30 minutes or more, you start to have metabolic shifts in the body. You burn more fats. The body tends to draw in the fat for energy. And once you get over that threshold, And the thing we saw with our cardiac patients, once they went beyond 30 minutes, 45 minutes to an hour walking, they started to shed weight, and uh, which was a a nice byproduct of the whole walking program that we have with all the cardiac patients. But I think that's where they got to start is on the walking. Now, you know, there's much more sophisticated programs today where they they walk, they do upper body exercise, and, and there's a lot of different machines that can be used in the cardiac rehab setting or in a good wellness center with a personal trainer. Uh, but you got to start slow because you just get frustrated. You try to do too much quickly. Well, first of all, there's injuries. And, you know, what I often say to patients um, Walking is probably the preferred best exercise, but if you've got problems with that, bad knees or whatever it might be, uh, the best exercise is the exercise you're going to do. 
So if you choose an exercise you're not going to do, it's not going to succeed. Also, I like patients to think about exercise in three ways, intensity, duration, and frequency. And the intensity is how fast you walk. And Mike says, uh, you start slow. That's very, very clear. The duration, kind of in a way, well, how long you go. And you mentioned some time there, but I tell patients between 20 and 40 minutes and gradually increase that. After an hour of exercise, the amount of further gain of improvement starts to plateau. So the best is probably between 40 and 60. But we'll take 20 to 40 if people do it. If you give people a goal that's too, too high, too big a goal, uh, oftentimes they'll drop out and just won't do it. So you have to kind of balance all of that. So that's been my challenge, of course, through my 42-year career. And when I first started, it became clear to me, and I've, I've said this to patients all along, whatever exercise you're going to do, you're going to be able to maintain that into older age. So if you're using an exercise bike or a rowing machine or whatever it might be, when you're 95, are you going to want to use an exercise bike or a rowing machine? Or do you think you're going to want to walk? I have a feeling you're going to want to walk because that's what you do to get around. So by walking as you get older, it also gives you the benefit of maintaining that into old age. And the other part of that is that walking also challenges balance. And Everything you challenge in the young years, you maintain longer into old age. So just a few tips for any of our listeners that, you know, are looking at uh, possibly starting something or improving what they're doing now. Well, can you think of anything we can talk about that we haven't covered, Mike? <laughs> no, I think, uh, you know, I would just mention, and I think you're the same way, that I do... Uh, try and do a pretty good job of uh, practicing what I preach. So uh, I do walk. I'm very physically active. I live in Maine in the woods on a lake. So there's plenty to do here in terms of working in the, the bush and taking down trees. But I got a dog and I would say at a minimum, I'm out with him an hour a day walking. And it makes a difference in your life. Oh, sure. I've known you, uh, as long as I've known you, which is a good part of my life, you always had a dog or two that used to take you for a walk. <laughs> they take me for the walk. Yeah. No doubt about it, John. So, anyway, it's been a pleasure to uh, reminisce and uh, talk about all these things. And, uh, you know, we're very lucky guys to have for our field. So we've enjoyed it so much and have, have such great people around us. Well, Dr. Michael Cox, Michael, thank you very kindly for spending the time sharing about your background and your expertise. And hopefully our audience will uh, have some benefit from what we've discussed. If anyone has any particular questions that might be answered, um, there will probably be a way to get those to me. I have a website, uh, which I think is mentioned uh, at the, on this podcast uh, and any particular questions if you have enough of them I'll invite Mike back and we'll have another go at it uh, but if you have some questions we'll do our best to answer them for you the reason we're doing this I, I for certainly my reason for doing this podcast is to try and get some of the things that I've absorbed in my experience and, and methodologies over 42 years to not be lost when I hit my best before date 
And I'm trying to get this out there so more people will benefit from that. So thank you for listening.